Our final section involves specific disorders and specific interventions for those disorders. Each of the anxiety disorders listed here and in the DSM-4 has specific treatment protocols that target cognitive, cognitive and behavioral symptoms of the anxiety disorder. Keep in mind that all the treatment protocols for anxiety include exposure as the primary intervention. It's the way exposure is used that differentiates the treatment protocols for each anxiety disorder. Exposure is an essential treatment component for anxiety. Anxiety will not improve without exposure. As we review each of the anxiety disorders below, note the thoughts and behaviors that are characteristic for each form of anxiety and the type of exposure used to target the problem thoughts and behaviors in each. Ask yourself, how can I address the automatic thoughts in this anxiety disorder? What's a more realistic way of looking at the thoughts? And how can I use exposure to address the avoidance elements in this anxiety disorder? How do I confront the feared situation? The first disorder we're going to be discussing is called Generalized Anxiety Disorder. It's also known as GAD. Generalized Anxiety Disorder is the most commonly diagnosed anxiety disorder. People with GAD often report they've had the disorder as long as they can remember, frequently since childhood. Those with GAD have anxious apprehension, a future-oriented mood state where one becomes prepared to attempt to cope with the pending negative events. Anxious apprehension leads to high levels of negative affect and chronic hyperarousal, a feeling of uncontrollability and constantly feeling on edge. It also includes an attentional focus to threats, internal or external, that uses hypervigilance to keep the person acutely aware of potential risk factors. The primary risk factors will be the ones related to the idiosyncratic content of the main fear, but many other risk factors can be noted as well. It also involves the intolerance of uncertainty that contributes to chronic worry as a means of predicting the future and pending outcomes, but these predictions invariably involve filling in the blanks with your own worst fears. The anxious apprehension process is present in all anxiety disorders. The content of the anxious apprehension is what differentiates one anxiety disorder from the other. GAD is often known as the what-if disorder. People frequently ask, what if, and then they insert their own fears or catastrophic expectations as part of the anxious apprehension process, but it never actually goes beyond this. They remain hyper-aroused regarding the feared stimuli, but have no coping plan to actually deal with the feared situation if it does ever actually occur. Part of the treatment is to move the person to a then-what problem-solving mode. This is part of a procedure called worry exposure, that is, exposing the person to their worry so that they can habituate to the anxiety-provoking stimulus and cognitively restructure their expectations regarding their own ability to successfully manage the anxiety-provoking stimulus. What is known as the PR plan can be a useful tool in dealing with GAD. Uh, if you have questions about the PR plan, ask your treatment coordinator and we can make sure that you have all the information that you need to use that. Specific phobias are next disorder. A phobia is an intense, unrealistic, or irrational fear of a specific object or situation that compels the person to avoid it. Most people with phobias are aware that their fears are unrealistic or blown out of proportion. 
Phobias are very common among the general public. Some clinicians estimate that most children have at least three or four phobias, as do many adults. In the treatment of phobias, people seek help for phobias only when they can no longer avoid them. For instance, if you have a phobic fear of flying, say that three times fast, the phobia isn't a problem until you can no longer avoid flying. It's only when you must fly that it turns into a problem that requires treatment. The standard treatment for phobia uses the following guidelines. First, set goals that are realistic and part of the phobic goals. It's unrealistic to get rid of all anxiety. Goals need to be specific and concrete. Again, identify the idiosyncratic content of the fear. Two people with the same phobia may have completely different outlooks and specific components of which they are afraid. Two people with a fear of flying may be afraid of different things. One may fear death, while another may fear pain with frightening images of a plane crash and suffering. Without identifying the idiosyncratic content, it's impossible to treat the disorder. Problem solve and identify coping skills for fear. Once you have the content of the fear, make plans to deal with it. Use the PR plan or an exposure plan. Problem solve different options and investigate what it would take to do each one. Imaginal, then in vivo exposure to the fear. That is, first we work with the imagination, and then, whenever possible, we move to a real-life confrontation of the thing that we're afraid of. We develop a hierarchy of fear, from the least to most frightening. Practice dealing with the feared stimulus or situation in your imagination, then move to practice in real-life situations. It's essential that the feared situation be confronted in real life as much as realistically possible. Exposure beyond goal. Continue exposure exercises to generalize adaptive behavior and coping skills. And finally, relapse prevention. Carefully observe for any signs of avoidance. Continue exposure exercises using the exposure plan worksheet, the CBT worksheet, and the coping plan. The same treatment guidelines are used to treat children. Because children are more vulnerable to environmental toxins, carefully assess for signs of abuse or family conflict. Family therapy may be the treatment of choice under these circumstances. Our next is something called social phobia. The defining feature of social phobia is a fear of scrutiny by others and the subsequent negative evaluations, usually based upon some observed poor performance or undesirable behavior, frequently of minor everyday tasks that lead to perceived rejection. The person with social phobia believes that they will act in some unacceptable way and be rejected, humiliated, and lose all sense of self-worth. They wish to present a favorable impression of themselves, but are very insecure about their ability to do so. This may lead to difficulty performing even minor tasks in public. Fear of drinking out of a glass, concern that your hand will shake and spill the drink. Fear of signing a check or a credit card slip, concern that the salesperson will notice your hand trembling, etc. Central to social phobia is rejection. Rejection is part of the treatment. Assess what the idiosyncratic content of the rejection is, find out what you're afraid others might think or say, and develop coping strategies and assertive defenses, then expose to the rejection. Rejection is a part of treatment, and without this component, treatment will not be successful. Use the exposure plan to develop and implement exposure exercises, paying particular attention to rejection as an element of the idiosyncratic content. Our next is panic disorder. P 
people often say they've had a panic attack, but the actual diagnostic criteria for a panic disorder is very specific. There's a difference between an anxiety attack and a panic attack. The symptoms are the same. The severity of the symptoms is the same. But what differentiates a panic attack from an anxiety attack is what's called a catastrophic misinterpretation of bodily signals. Altogether, catastrophic misinterpretation of bodily signals. Anybody with an anxiety disorder can have an anxiety attack. For instance, if a person with a snake phobia winds up stepping on a snake, they can have an anxiety attack based on that. Anxiety attacks are caused by external triggers. A panic attack is an internal trigger, and that internal trigger, again, is a catastrophic misinterpretation of bodily signals. That is to say, the person who has a panic attack has that attack because they're experiencing signs of anxiety. They're experiencing symptoms of anxiety. Their heart is beating in their chest. Their chest is tight. They have difficulty breathing. They feel dizzy. And they have a catastrophic misinterpretation of what those symptoms mean. So for the person, for instance, who feels his heart beating in his chest, his chest tightening, feeling dizzy, may conclude that they're having a heart attack. A catastrophic misinterpretation of bodily signals. Keep in mind that all the symptoms for anxiety are harmless. They don't cause any medical problems. People do not die because of anxiety. The symptoms themselves are harmless. But for the person with a panic disorder, they misinterpret the symptoms, the physical symptoms, and they think that there's something immediately life-threatening that's about to happen to them. That's what a panic disorder is. Some of the more common concerns with panic disorder is when people experience shortness of breath, they fear that they're going to stop breathing. When they experience chest pain, they're afraid they're going to have a heart attack. If they have palpitations, they're afraid that they're having a heart attack. If they have some sort of depersonalization, they may fear that they're going crazy. If they experience numbness, tingling, dizziness, they may be afraid they're having a stroke. It's the misinterpretation of those bodily signals to something catastrophic and immediately life-threatening that's the basis for a panic disorder. It's not unusual for people with a panic disorder to, again, fear that they're having something catastrophically wrong and they're about to die, so they go to an emergency room. They have a complete workup, and nothing is found to be wrong. They then consult a cardiologist who puts them through a series of tests and finds nothing wrong, but the person keeps having these episodes where they're fearful that they're about to die without any sort of medical findings to support that. It's a very frustrating experience for a lot of people. Like any other anxiety disorder, the most effective way to treat panic attacks is to expose the person to situations that invoke panic and find a way for them to prove to themselves that the sensations they are feeling are unpleasant but not dangerous and not a sign of impending death or disaster. Once people are able to test their beliefs this way and draw a conclusion about the meaning of their symptoms that is not catastrophic in the actual situation, they rarely have another panic attack. The physiological sensations may return, but they no longer have the catastrophic conclusions and therefore no longer panic. The short version of the treatment for panic includes identifying symptoms and bodily cues, rooting out catastrophic misinterpretations, developing alternative explanations for the symptoms, 
preventing safety behaviors that frequently accompany panic disorder, and testing the validity of those alternate explanations of the symptoms through discussion and behavioral experiments. So essentially, if you have somebody with a panic disorder, you expose them to the symptoms that they experience, the physiological symptoms. One of the best ways to do that is, assuming there's a PCP approval and there's no pre-existing heart conditions, is to have the person run in place in the office. Have them keep running in place until they've worked up some physiological symptoms. Their heart is beating, they may feel some tightness in the chest, they may feel a little bit dizzy, and you keep them doing the exercise. What you're doing when you do that is proving to them that the symptoms you're experiencing are not life-threatening. Your lips are not turning blue, you're not laying on the ground clutching your chest. The symptoms are uncomfortable and they're unpleasant, but they're not life-threatening. As soon as the person is able to recognize that the symptoms that they're experiencing are not catastrophic and not an indication that they're about to die, the anxiety and the panic go away. Our next disorder is agoraphobia. Agoraphobia frequently accompanies panic disorder. The term for agoraphobia comes from ancient Greek, and it means literally fear of the marketplace, an accurate description of a disorder that commonly prevents people from going to the grocery store or to Walmart. It usually develops when people have had a panic attack, not an anxiety attack, but a panic attack, in Walmart, the grocery store, or something like that. They avoid, they go back home, the symptoms of the anxiety go away once they get home, but then they become increasingly afraid to get out of the house to do things for fear of having another panic attack because they're so intense, so overwhelming, so unpleasant that they see the house as safety, and if they go anywhere else, they're prone to have another panic attack. So they stop going places. It keeps people from going to the grocery store. It keeps people from doing social activities. It keeps people from working sometimes. It can be extremely crippling disorder. The treatment for agoraphobia is fairly straightforward. You develop a hierarchy of what the person would like to do, and then expose them to this from the least frightening to the most frightening elements. Exposure is a necessary treatment component. Treatment usually involves the other person who is inadvertently reinforcing the agoraphobia. Uh, for instance, a spouse or other family member that may be required to participate in treatment as well. Use the exposure plan to develop and implement exposure exercises, focusing on getting the other person out of the house and involved in normal daily activities, like grocery shopping, driving, recreational activities. Exposure exercises need to be done for at least 90 minutes to be effective. Our next disorder is obsessive-compulsive disorder, also known as OCD. Uh, OCD is also known as the doubting disease. There are several subtypes of OCD, including contamination, checking, counting, ordering, and hoarding. The doubting component comes in when the OCD sufferer has done a task, like uh, checking to make sure all the locks in the house are locked before bedtime, uh, but wonders if they actually did, the che did check the lock or just thought they did, but may not have, and may have forgotten to check it, and checking they may have accidentally unlocked the door without noticing it, The doubting component comes in when the OCD sufferer has done a task, for instance, checking locks, but wonders if they actually did check the lock, just thought they did, but actually didn't, may have forgotten to check it, or in checking may have accidentally unlocked the door without noticing. 
they're reasonably certain they did check the lock, but now wonder if someone might get in, if someone might get hurt, and it would be all their fault for not checking the lock and become anxious and preoccupied with the lock, and they feel compelled to go back and recheck the lock over and over and over again. There are two components to this disorder. The first is obsessions, or intrusive, ruminative thoughts that lead to an overwhelming level of anxiety and discomfort. And compulsions, or behaviors and rituals that are designed to reduce anxiety by remedying the situation highlighted by the obsessions. OCD is conceptualized by the attempt to over-control these obsessive thoughts, which leads to a focus on an inability to escape from intrusive thoughts. This focus usually centers on sex, violence and destruction of property, and illness or contamination. These thoughts are thought to be due to a rigidly high religious or moral conviction. Notice that this model involves personal responsibility as a key component to OCD, as if by thinking something will make it come true. Part of the treatment is to separate thoughts from feelings. There are five assumptions that are characteristic of OCD. First, thinking of an action is the same as doing the action. Second, failing to prevent the action is the same as causing the harm. There are no extenuating circumstances. If you don't perform the ritual to control or cancel the thought, that means that you deliberately want to cause harm, and you must always control your thoughts to prevent harm. As this model illustrates, catastrophizing and responsibility are necessary components for OCD. Treating OCD requires several components. The first is reducing the perception of danger, which includes much decatastrophizing and normalizing of experiences. People with OCD are convinced that the thoughts that they have are highly abnormal, and because they had the thoughts, they have responsibility for the action, and that they're very likely to do the action. That is, if they have the thought, they think it means they're going to do the action and they must control the thoughts to prevent them from doing the action. Again, it's important to separate thinking from behavior. Just because someone thinks about something does not mean that they will do it. For instance, I might tell someone, okay, I'm thinking of stabbing my own child. Do you think I will now do that? This ultimately leads to testing out two hypotheses. Having these thoughts is truly dangerous or this is just an obsessive thought and it has no relation to the world or to my behavior. Test these hypotheses through guided discovery and examining the evidence. When doing this, it's important to allow the person to draw his or her own conclusions. When using cognitive restructuring, notice appraisals and conclusions that are based upon possibility inference. The obsession is given importance to what could happen, not what will or is likely to happen. The treatment of OCD always requires two steps. First, that the person be exposed to the stimulus and the obsessive component. And next, through response prevention, the person deliberately does not use the maladaptive coping response, the compulsion, in order to reassess the consequence of the obsession. Did the catastrophe actually follow if the compulsion was not performed? What other way can the prevention of catastrophe be explained? If you did not perform the ritual, did catastrophe actually follow? Does having the thought mean catastrophe will follow? Are the thoughts dangerous or just unwelcome? 
that describes the most basic treatment approach to OCD, which is exposure and response prevention. You expose the person to what it is that they're thinking, and you don't let them perform the compulsion. They have to voluntarily be willing to not perform the compulsion to be able to realize that nothing bad is going to happen if they have those thoughts. Next is another phobia. This one is called blood phobia. Blood phobia is a unique disorder among anxiety and phobias as it's the only anxiety disorder in which people actually faint. Oftentimes people are surprised to hear that this is the only disorder in which people actually faint because they assume that in any sort of anxiety disorder there's the possibility of them fainting, but that's not true. This is the only disorder, anxiety disorder, where people actually do faint. It's important to keep in mind what causes people to faint. The thing that causes people to faint is they have a sudden drop in blood pressure. But when you're anxious, your blood pressure actually goes up. You're not going to faint. You may feel like you're going to faint. You may feel dizzy, but you don't faint with anxiety, except when you have blood phobia. In this case, it's an adaptive response in that the blood that you see may be your own. The decreased blood pressure prevents you from bleeding out. Fainting is a byproduct of that. It's a purely involuntary physiological response. The treatment protocol is to mildly increase blood pressure by doing light exercise before exposure to blood with blood donation as part of the treatment and relapse prevention plan. Remember, this is the only form of anxiety where people actually do faint. We're now going to look at a summary of the treatment for anxiety. To effectively treat anxiety disorders, you must expose the person to the anxiety-provoking stimulus. Treatment will not be effective without exposure. Use the exposure plan worksheet to help out with this. The exposure must target the idiosyncratic content of the anxiety. A thorough assessment is required to pinpoint this content and for accurate diagnosis. Continued exposure to the phobic stimulus without the use of avoidance or safety behaviors will allow the person to desensitize to that trigger. Exposure to the phobic stimulus will be unpleasant and the participant may consider it a form of aversive therapy. We work on collaboration and coping skills prior to the exposure exercises. With phobias and generalized anxiety disorders, we're going to focus on skill development, better coping, and gradual exposure using a hierarchy of feared situations from least to most threatening. With obsessive compulsive disorder and panic disorder, we're going to focus on increasing tolerance to symptoms, developing alternative explanations for the symptoms, and testing the validity of the new alternate explanations. We're always going to work on identifying the idiosyncratic content of the fear. We're going to remember that nature favors anxious genes and that a lot of anxiety is adaptive. Remember that the symptoms of anxiety are completely harmless. They're unpleasant, but they do not lead to heart attacks, strokes, or any other physical illness or medical complications. Also remember it's medically impossible to faint due to anxiety with the exception of blood phobia. If you're anxious, your blood pressure goes up. To faint, you have to have a sudden drop in blood pressure. Obviously, an audio recording is not a substitute for actually working with a trained clinician to deal with some of these anxiety disorders. 
talk to your treatment coordinator and we'll work to come up with a treatment plan that's going to be able to address some of your problems and be able to get things better. If you have specific questions about treating anxiety disorders, feel free to talk to the program coordinator.